Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Vinny Damopolito. And I'm Kale McPherson. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we first, first, Mark Dunley reports on a report by Nyperg on small claims court. Mark talks to the attorney Riss, Russ Haven of Nyperg to tell us more. Then Petri Dish t- tells us about his work maintaining radio stations and working on radio stations in Alaska. Later on, Rhea Barthel heads to the Troy Public Library to talk about to talk to Carol Roberts about, on youth books for Black History Month. After that, Avery Stempel and Joe McKay joins us to tell us about a psilocybin event coming up at the Linda. Finally, founders Jamaica Miles and Sean Young of the Synecdoches, all of us marked the start of Black History with the first Focus Friday broadcast of 2024. All that and more. But first, here are your headlines. <laughs> a freight train derailed in the village of Valley Falls in northern Rensselaer County Wednesday night, sending 10 cars off the tracks and two into the adjacent Hoosick River. Vegetable oil and plastic beads spilled into the river. A lawsuit filed in federal court is seeking to overturn New York's ban on out-of-state concealed carry permits, arguing that it violates the Second Amendment rights. The plaintiff have concealed carry licenses in their home states and are able to use those permits to carry firearms in many other jurisdictions. They contend that New York State is the only state in the nation that do not recognize gun permits from other states. The Times Union reports that 176 workers at the Kesserling nuclear site in West Milton since 2012 will be gone by this spring. The government-owned Kesselring site is used to train Navy personnel in the operation of nuclear-powered submarines and aircraft carriers. Newport News Shipbuilding was hired to refuel the site's reactor by installing nuclear fuel rods and to perform other work on the site. Albany police are investigating the city's fourth homicide in the five weeks of this year. 34-year-old victim died after he was shot late Wednesday on Ontario and First Street. The police claim that the victim was involved in several physical fights throughout the day. Robert Conway, a former mayor of the city of Troy and a longtime fixture in the local Democratic Party, recently died. The Times Union reports that two months after a judge dismissed a murder indictment against him, felony-turned-anti-violence activist Dante Mitchell is facing new charges, alleging he tried to kill different, uh, killed a different person in the same incident in Cohoes. Mitchell served more than two decades in prison due to a string of armed robberies, but his sentence was commu- uh, commuted due to his advocacy work while imprisoned. And that's it for your headlines. A NYPIRG report on small claims courts uh, found that while nearly 80% of claimants said they had won their cases, nearly 75% of the winners failed to collect a cent of their judgments, worse than when NYPIRG did its first survey four decades ago. Small claims courts uh, cases include tenant-landlord disputes, homeowners' issues with contractors, wage theft, and consumer ripoffs. Attorney Russ Haven of Nyperg discusses the report with Mark Dunley for the, Mudson, for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. We're talking with Russ Haven, an attorney with the uh, New York Public Interest Research Group, and they recently put out a report uh, on the Smalls Claim Court, which is where people go to basically deal with low-level disputes, though important, things like landlord and tenants and 
uh, problems with contractors, sometimes with wage debt. So, Russ, you know, can you give us an introduction to this report and what you found? Sure. Um, so, NYPERG's recent report, Small Claims, Small Changes, looked at the experience of people using the City of Albany Small Claims Court in calendar year 2021. And as it turns out, we had done a similar report back in 1978, so some 45 years or so ago, called Nowhere Else to Turn, where we surveyed people's experiences using the small claims court back in the 70s. So we had somewhat of a basis of comparison, and we wanted to see how the small claims court, or the people's court, as it's often called, was doing. Well, one of the things that apparently you found out is that uh, even when people win, unfortunately, they have a hard time uh, actually collecting on their judgment. Yeah, this is um, the uh, Achilles heel of the small claims court process. Uh, and as we say, winning is in everything uh, when it comes to small claims court. So what we found in, in the recent survey of uh, litigants or parties using the small claims court in the city of Albany, uh, we found out that while uh, a, substant a substantial uh, percentage of the, the parties who uh, filed their claims won, 80% of the folks we were able to survey, we found that 75% um, of them uh, collected no part of their judgment. Um, now we, you know, it was a relatively small sample because of the difficulties in in getting through to people. Uh, although we we tried our best, but nonetheless, um, it points up a problem with the small claims court that Nyberg has documented over the decades, and other groups that have looked at the court that uh, it's um, it's a convenient court to use, but the real stumbling block tends to be when it comes to collecting the money. So has NYPER proposed some reforms about how to actually, you know, make enforcement of the judgments that you win, um, you know, better, more effective? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was part of the reason we wanted to look at this anew, is to see, is the experience the same and what kinds of things could we do to improve the prospects of collecting when you win in small claims court? So some of the things we'd like to see done uh, is have the judges actually use some of the provisions that are on the books uh, that were put back in, in the law back in the 1980s or so after the first uh, series of reports that came out and identified collections as a real problem in the court. So the judges, for example, can require a party to disclose information about where their assets are while they're in the court. Uh, there's there's a law in the books that empowers them to do it. As far as we know, it never gets used. Um, for for businesses who are defendants in the small claims court, um, the court can make referrals to the attorney general's office when they when they suspect there's a pattern of of consumer abuses going on. That doesn't happen. And there's a number of other provisions that were initially put into try and um, give some backbone to the uh, uh, collections process. But, um, you know, clearly it's not working very well for the people who use the court. 
Now, have these reforms been, you know, pending at all in, in the state legislature or has the state legislature made any uh, improvements or, or, you know, even the, the, the Court of Appeals, I guess, sort of supervises all the courts, you know, have they weighed in to try to make this more effective? Um, not really. I mean, the, the small claims courts, because lawyers don't practice there, because the judges are rotated in and out, um, we we tend to think it's it's not given the attention it deserves in the court system. The legislature did make one key change a few years ago, made it somewhat easier to collect a um, a security deposit that was wrongfully withheld by a landlord. Um, and you know the, the, that proposal um, had been kicking around the legislature for decades. It was one of the bills that uh, Assemblymember Richard Gottfried had introduced. He was in the legislature for some 50 years, and he, he was actually able to get it over the goal line in his last year before he retired. But um, even that needs some tweaking. But specific laws on collections, uh, we've got some bills pending. Uh, Nyberg's looking to uh, uh, work with legislators to try and introduce some additional uh, reforms that would increase the chances of success. Now, you can't get blood from a stone. So if you sue somebody in small claims court and they're so-called judgment proof, which means their only source of income is something like social security or, or uh, they're on public assistance and they don't have any real assets, those folks you can't do much about uh, unless their prospects change. But we do believe with more information with more help from court personnel, with access to information uh, about where people may have assets, you could really boost the success rate when it comes to collecting your money in small claims court. So if people are out there listening, you know, sh should they at this point, you know, actually try to deal with the small claims court? Well, one of the interesting findings of the study was that despite the problems, um, a significant percentage of folks were satisfied with the courts. Um, some uh, back in 1978, 67% said they were somewhat, at least somewhat satisfied with the court and their experience. Uh, in 2021, the folks who used the court, 76% uh, um, said they were at least somewhat satisfied with the court and their experience. And 69% of our recent survey respondents said they'd use the court again. And I think that's because as a practical matter, they have nowhere else to turn. Um, you know, small claims courts by definition are uh, in New York State, $10,000 or less. Uh, that would be the highest um, level you could sue for, but that's only in New York City. In the city of Albany court, you could sue for up to 5,000 and you're not going to get an attorney to take the case. And even if you did financially, it's it's not a winning proposition. Because by the time you pay the attorney, you'll have no money left um, to cover, you know, what you what you had recovered, you know, your losses. Um, so we need to make this this uh, court better. Um, and in addition to the other reforms I mentioned, more court personnel uh, available to to talk to people and assist them um, would really be uh, would really help because there's been a, a big
big cut in the uh, courts over the years uh, in terms of court staffing. And, and you know, it's, it's felt with the move to automation and all, uh, it's just um, harder for folks to, uh, to actually talk to a live person when they need help. You know, and I'd expect that some people, you know, do like the situation where they get to talk to a, you know, a landlord or somebody else they're having a dispute with in front of a judge because everybody then be, tends to be on best behavior and, and may agree to do things, you know, irrespective of whatever, you know, is the final judgment. If people want to take a look at this uh, report uh, on NYPIRG website someplace. Sure. Let me mention two things. Nyperg's website where you can get this report. And the other is for anyone who is interested in getting assistance using the small claims court. Nyperg runs a consumer helpline called the Small Claims Court Action Center. We provide free assistance. Uh, we don't provide legal advice or courtroom representation, but we can help people navigate the system and understand it. So the NYPIRG website is at www.nyp, as in Peter, nypirg, as in nyperg.org. And if you need help with the small claims courts, you can call our toll-free number 800 566 5020. Russ Haven, Nyperg, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you, Mark. And for more news stories, climate stories, you can check our website at mediasanctuary.org. Next, we turn to an archival interview with Pete Treedish, a technician for community radio stations. He spoke with our own Kaylin McPherson and David Moore about his work using renewable sources for radio power and how important radio is to staying connected. Petri Dish was a member of the founding collaborative of Radio Mutiny, 91.3 FM in Philadelphia, and the founder of the Prometheus Radio Project. Petri Dish goes around the community helping community radio stations like Hudson Mohawk Magazine with engineering need to get on the air. We welcome Petri Dish to talk about his work in helping other community radio stations. So great to be here. Thanks a lot for having me. So what do you, so I guess to start, tell us a little bit about yourself and what do you do at these radio stations when you go to help them out? Well, uh, you know, one thing about radio is that uh, unlike the internet, it involves antennas and towers and lots of wires and cables and things. And uh, they take some maintenance. Now, not that the internet doesn't have all those things, but those things are kind of made invisible to us and they're sort of behind the ownership of, you know, the big platforms and whatever. But, uh, you know, when I was starting getting involved in this, there was a, a real important thing that we thought uh, as people involved in making media was that ownership of the platform was very important, uh, that you didn't want anyone to get between you know, the community media organization and the listener um, and, the, and the people that were trying to, you know, to, to listen to it. You know, and that's a, that's a real different thing than, say, something like Facebook, where you write a post, it goes into a mysterious black box, maybe it comes in, maybe it doesn't. Maybe a hundred of your friends see it, maybe three of them see it. No one knows. It all just, whatever's best for Facebook's advertising is what comes out of it. With community radio, you know, uh, you know, your voice goes straight into the transmitter and it goes out over the airwaves and then people pick it up and nobody can get in the way of that. Uh, 
unless someone turns the radio off. Or there's a glitch in the system, which is what you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's my job to to sort of figure out, like you know, right now we're trying to figure out. Sometimes you y'all are having some silences uh, when the computer kicks off, or uh, you know, uh, you know, there's a there's a transmitter out there uh, that's part of Hudson Mohawk uh, Red that's that's up in a tree. Uh, so sometimes a branch falls on it. So all kinds of things can happen. So one of your projects happens to be up in Alaska, and you're trying to take this radio station and update their systems as well, but also try to convert them to clean wind and solar. So tell us a little bit about that. That's it, exactly. Yeah, our, our station, the station that I'm working with is called Raven Radio, and it's in Sitka, Alaska. And that is a booming metropolis of 8,000 people. Uh, in, uh, in, in Sitka, Alaska. But uh, in the 1980s, when that station started, they realized there were also a lot of people in some indigenous villages nearby and also some fishing villages where uh, there was no radio coverage at all. So they built a network of repeaters uh, that in these smaller towns of like 80 people, 50 people, 100 people, 500 people. And so they have seven repeaters. And uh, like a lot of things, uh, you know, just like it, it got put on and it worked and it worked for a long time. And uh, those places are really hard to get to. You can only get there on a boat or a seaplane. There are no roads that go to any of them. Uh, there's no road that goes to Sitka. There are roads inside of Sitka, but you can't drive on the road from Sitka to any other city because it's on an island. Uh, and the same with all these outlying communities. So they were very hard to maintain. And so a lot of them have just been kind of running with, you know, someone checking them out every year or two, but no major renovations. So the station decided it was time to do an update of everything so that they could be reached by internet. They could be uh, troubleshot when things gone wrong. I would say right now, like out of the seven repeaters at any given time, like four or so are working. And, and it's uh, too bad because it's a real, it's a lifeline to those communities. So anyway, what we're doing is while we're replacing the transmitters, we're replacing the antennas, and while we're at it, one of the biggest issues in Alaska is energy. Uh, it's ironic because so much oil and gas is mined there, uh, or is drilled for. But in fact, all the oil that co comes from Alaska has to go down to Seattle to get refined and then shipped by boat back up. So uh, gas is $10 a gallon there. And a lot of these villages, they only get one diesel shipment per year. Uh, and so it's, they're very conscious of like every watt that they use. So uh, we decided that for our installations, we would, uh, to whatever extent we could, we would add wind power and solar panel and also large batteries. That's a real big part of it is for a long time, batteries have been, very expensive, difficult to maintain. Um, but in the past couple of years, as a result of electric cars and some serious industrial policy in China and some other things, lithium batteries, which are just so far superior, uh, are becoming not cheap, but but possible, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think we spent $7,000 on a battery bank that probably like 20 years ago would have been much less good and probably would have been thirty or $40,000. Um, so 
uh, yeah, so we're, we're just, we're adding a lot of capacity to, to be more reliable and, and to use less diesel. Pete, you've uh, honed a lot of skills over the years. I'd like to take a quick look back from from your founding of the of the uh, Radio Mutiny and Prometheus to what you saw as the perils and promises back then, and what you've seen today and into the future. Sure. I mean, I think when when I first was involved in a pirate radio station. We were activists that were involved in different movements, and we felt that our voices were always stifled. You know, there would be Philadelphia. Yeah, we, you know, there'd be a, a hundred or a thousand of us on a street corner, and then we couldn't even get into a newspaper with, you know, a protest against war or something like that. Um, and so we started a pirate station, and uh, you know that kind of undermined the the control uh, that corporations had over over what people had. Over the ensuing time. That hasn't gone away, but there's become a second challenge. And th that second challenge is, is uh, one way of shutting down free speech is to control the channel and not let anything through. The other way of shutting down free speech today is to flood the attention um, and, uh, you know, to put disinformation, false information, nonsense uh, and confuse people or make just make people despair and I think that, uh, you know, that's a new ch challenge for community media is to figure out, like, how to, like, make content that is is good, that holds people's attention, that, that uh, you know, that truly informs. And, uh, and we have the added challenge of a giant industry that's based on just distracting everybody to death. Uh, so uh, that's, a, that's a big that, – that's – it's, it's only gotten more complicated since I start, not, not less. So going back to Alaska, some of these cities, this radio is important to their community. This is how they get their news, right? It is, yeah. There's, uh, you know, internet is very hard to come by. Uh, and in fact, in Alaska, if you use more than a certain number of gigabytes, your internet goes off for, uh, you know, until the end of the billing cycle. Whoa. So uh, there's a story about a town hall that like some kids got in and watched some YouTube video and the whole town had no, the whole city government had no internet for the next like six days uh, just cause like some kids got in and watched YouTube for like an hour. So uh, that's a big challenge there. So internet's not available and, and so people use radio a lot. So, so what are some difficulties that you're facing uh, in updating these translators, changing the power sources to solar and wind. Everything about the logistics there is tough. Like the, the towns you can't get to unless you, you go on a seaplane or, or a very slow boat. And shipping things up there is difficult. Everything costs twice as much up there. Getting around. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, I had a, an amazing month last summer where I never took a cell phone out of my pocket because there was no, there's no cell coverage. Oh, I couldn't tell time because I don't have a watch and I stopped carrying around my cell phone. I never used keys. I never used money because there's no store in town. I just had to bring all the food I was going to eat. So uh, it was a, a great vacation from the you know, modern life. Although I spent the whole time installing solar panels and trying to connect up internet links and you know, all that sort of thing. So it's a blessing and a curse, you know. At the same time, yes. It's great to get away from the internet until someone's trying to contact you to tell you that your shipment of panels is on the way. You know? Right, yeah. 
So within the last 30 seconds, is there anything else you'd like to say or anything you we didn't ask you that you think is important? Uh, just so happen to see Hudson Mohawk uh, alive and thriving. You've got a, a really unique volunteer-driven news model. Uh, I haven't, I've, I've seen very few like this around the country, and I, I think you're, you're way ahead of the curve in terms of, like, of what you're making here. Well, thank you for joining us, Petri Dis, and, and talking about your very important work about keeping radio stations going. Always great thank, to be here. Thank Thanks. you, Pete. If you'd like to learn more about how the radio works, join us as a volunteer for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine and Sanctuary for Independent Media. You can contact us at info at mediasanctuary.org or go to our website, mediasanctuary.org. Vinny? <laughs> for those of you just tuning in, I'm Vinny Damapolito. And I'm Kellen McPherson. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOC LP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. With Black, M Black History Month upon us, Bria Barthel sat down with Kel Roberts, head of Young People's Services at Troy Public Library, who re recommended three books by black authors for Black History Month, plus one Chinese cuisine and history for the Lunar New Year. This is Bria Barthel with Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm back once again at Troy Public Library to have Carol Roberts, head of Young People's Services, shared some of her favorite books with me once again. So, Carol, welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hi, Bria. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. And it's great to have you here. It looks like you've got an, yet another set of interesting books for us. What's your first one? Okay, well, my first one, um, in recognition of uh, Black History Month, um, this one is a picture book. It's called A History of Me. It's by Adrea Theodore. And um, she's a black author. And this is a book about her experience as a child, though it's not an autobiography per se. Um, it's about her experience um, as a kid and learning about um, black history and being the only uh, person of color in her class. History, interestingly enough, repeats itself when, um, well, this is what inspired the book. Her daughter had come home from school and was talking about the same experience of being the only one only person of color and learning about slavery and how awkward that felt for her. So this is Andrea's story about when she was a kid and went through this experience. One interesting thing it brought up in the book is the idea that people of color are defined or should be defined by what they do and how they persevere and other qualities, not just the fact that there's a history of um, enslavement among their ancestors. One scene that really made an impression on me was um, there's a picture of, of her walking home from school with a violin case, and this boy, a white boy, says to her, boy, if it wasn't for Lincoln, you'd still all be our slaves. And what she wanted to say to him was, is that all you see when you look at me? Also, what's lovely in this book are the illustrations. Front and center on each page, you see either the girl herself or you see one of her ancestors and lots of bright colors. And I love this. There's a scene in the book where um, 
you know, she's got a starburst background and she's wearing bold colors, bright yellow boots, and she's got her fists held up to the sky. And uh, this is like a superpower. And with her pigtails flying in two different directions. Right. And, you know, she's, you know, symbolically, of course, you know, she's, she's taking her power back. It's, it's not a long book, and it's written so it seems like it's in verse. What age group or reading level would you say this is for? I would say kindergarten to third grade, so five through eight. And is that technically a picture book, or it's on the sort of halfway between picture and chapter, or how would you define it? I would say it's a picture book for um, a slightly older audience. Great, and that's A History of Me by... Adrea Theodore, with illustrations by Erin K. Robinson. And your next book? This is a YA romance called Opposite of Always, and this is written by Justin A. Reynolds. It's a what romance? YA. Oh, okay, young adult. I'm sorry. I, I thought I was hearing YA, and it's like, I don't know, why a, why a romance? <laughs> <laughs> that too. I loved this book. You figure out very quickly um, that Jack, the main character, is in a time loop, and it's like Groundhog Day, the movie. He meets this wonderful girl named Kate, and it turns out, actually, that shortly after he meets her, she finds out that she has this genetic condition, which is sickle cell anemia. And before he can help her, she passes away. So... Immediately, you're thinking, oh, this is, <laughs> this is going to be a real downer of a book. But something f- interesting happens. He starts reliving the experience of meeting her, actually. And uh, when he finds out, when he gets the phone call that she passes away, of course, he's just devastated. But suddenly, he wakes up, and it's, it's the same day that he met her. And so this keeps repeating and repeating until he gets it right. And so um, it's highly engaging. Um, And, of course, this is also written by an author of color about two people of color. Okay. So that's Opposite of Always by Justin A. Reynolds. And it's a young adult book? Yes, not to be confused with Jason Reynolds. I don't know who Jason Reynolds is, so I, I have no chance of confusing them. And your next book? Okay. The next book that I have is called... Ellie Angle Saves Herself by Leah Johnson, and this is another um, book about a a black protagonist written by an author of color, and it's a coming-of-age story of a 12-year-old queer black girl who has a secret crush on her best friend, and if you asked her, Ellie would tell you that she's just an average girl, but we come to find out that she's anything but ordinary, and there's an earthquake in her town, and she wakes up that morning after the earthquake feeling weird and different, even more so than you would for having gone through that. She discovers upon waking that her pet fish has passed away, and so she decides to have a eulogy for him, and when she touches him during um, the ceremony, he springs back to life, and suddenly she realizes she has superhero powers. And so she has to come to term with her responsibility and the understanding that there is a cost involved. So now she has, she has this superpower ability to bring dead things back to life, but it's not free. So it's a wonderful coming-of-age story. 
What else can I say? I, I loved it. Also nice to have a story about kids who are exceptional. I like the title. The, the cover of the book says, Ellie Engel saves the world, and then the words the world are crossed out and in sort of a script herself. Right. And of course, you know, she's a 12-year-old girl, and seventh grade is um, a very challenging time for, for anybody, but I think there's a lot of kids that would be able to relate to that. Okay, and then the final book? This is called Chinese Menu, The History, Myths, and Legends Behind Your Favorite Foods. And this is by Grace Lin, who um, is from central New York and is also a Newberry and Caldecott honor author. She's written a lot of substantial books for for young people. And that's uh, a nice selection for Lunar New Year coming up. Yes. Well, I liked this book a lot because it's just chock full of interesting information. And when you get done reading this book, you just want to have Chinese food. For example, you you can learn about who invented chopsticks and who knew that um, forks were actually in ancient China. We make a lot of assumptions about other cultures, certainly, but in terms of Chinese history, um, there's so much we don't know. Um, The book's full of folk tales and myths um, and interesting little tidbits that you wouldn't know of otherwise, Um, but it really allows you the chance to dive into Chinese culture and cuisine. And then at the beginning of each chapter, for example, there's a note about the dish that is the topic, and then it goes on to tell you the history so it's not really a cookbook so much as historical insights into the different dishes and different aspects of food culture. Yes. Um, I like to think of it as everything you ever wanted to know about any kind of Chinese food, um, except for the recipes. Although there is, there is one recipe in the book, and that is for the author's mother's scallion pancakes, which I haven't tried. But when I first saw this, I thought perhaps it would be a cookbook, but it's not. But it's a wonderful introduction to something that we, um, we all have grown up with and enjoy. And so it's really fun to learn um, not only about the foods, but about um, the folk tales. Now, this looks like it would be for a higher reading level. It's, it looks like, um, for one thing, it's a long book, and it also has pretty thick text. I, I would actually say, I would say ages eight and up. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's in small bits. You know, each chapter is only maybe three pages. And there's illustrations as well. So I think anybody that's reading on a third grade level could could handle this easily. Great. And so that's Carol Roberts at Troy Public Library talking about A History of Me, Opposite of Always, Ellie Engel Saves Herself, and Chinese Menu. And the website for more information is thetroylibrary.org. And you have to have the word the, or you go to a totally different state's Troy library. Carol, thanks so much. It's great to, to, to talk with you again, and I'll see you next month. Thanks, Bria. See you then. A full list of authors and titles is available in the segment description on our website. Stories of Transformation are a collection of documentary shorts about the impact of psilocybin and other psychedelics. They'll be screened on February 26th 
at 7 a.m. at the Linda's WAMC Performing Arts Center, located at 339 Central Avenue in Albany. We are joined today by Avery Stemple, co-president of New Yorkers for Mental Health Awareness, and Joy Joe McKay, a New York firefighter who has benefited from this type of treatment. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us at the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you so much. And just real quick, you said 7 a.m. It's actually 7 p.m. 7 p.m. <laughs> Don't come in the morning, please. <laughs> well, that was my first question. So, <laughs> uh, so what about this type of treatment interested you both? Well, for me, um, I found out by a kind of by accident. Not well, actually, I shouldn't say by accident. I found out um, while I was still an active firefighter in New York City. Um, that there was a study done by an um, a advocacy group in Harvard um, that helped with the condition that I have, which is called cluster or suicide headache. Um, I, there were really no treatments out there that really worked. Um, the best was 30% of the people would respond to the pharmaceuticals, but uh, the rest of us didn't have any choices. Um, I got the nerve up after I retired, you know, being desperate, and uh, it worked. It stopped the pain and it benefited me in a few other ways as well. Yeah, and, and I have a culinary mushroom farm in Troy. And one of the reasons I got involved is the sheer number of people who came in often begging for help, not because they wanted it for recreation, because, and I do believe that recreation is a step for towards wellness, but often for, hey, my daughter is suicidal and none of the medicines that they've prescribed have worked for her, or my father is dying in hospice and he's suffering from end of life ennui and I've heard that this works. And unfortunately we cannot provide any of that medicine at this point, which is why I got involved in advocacy because I do feel that with the right guardrails and the right um, education that people can use these uh, natural medicines to help heal and for their well care. But ultimately, no one should be criminalized for their attempts to heal. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and isn't it uh, true that this kind of a treatment is generally a little bit safer than pharmaceuticals can be, at least when it comes to side effects and things? Yeah, Avery, you want to get on it? Well, I mean, you know, safer is 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 relative. I, uh, Psilocybin-containing mushrooms don't have any uh, uh, addictive co uh, components that we know of so far, and it, they're highly non-toxic. So you can't overdose on them. You could spend much more time than you may want on a, an experience, um, but that's a, uh, you know neither here nor there, but that, that's one of the reasons why education is so important. And we, we want to make sure that people are uh, understand the impact of their choices and, and how they're applying the medicine to, you know, their situations. And yeah. And as far as the other treatments go for, for this condition, for cluster headache, um, the, the, some of them are, uh, are, are pretty nasty um, as far as side effects go. Um, psilocybin mushrooms occur naturally. Uh, I, I believe you, you could eat a truckload of them and there's no toxicity to them at all. Um, whereas some of the med pharmaceuticals um, that had been prescribed, um, aneurysm and, and cardiac issues as well were, were two of the big ones, but there were quite a few other uh, side effects. Who would you suggest this kind of a treatment for? Oh, goodness. Well, I mean... <clears throat> They, the the number of 
symptoms that psilocybin-containing mushrooms have proven to help uh, range the gamut from irritable bowel syndrome to post-traumatic stress disorder. So it, it really is, some people are taking it for uh, pain management and inflammation, and some people are taking it for cognitive disassociation and trauma. So it's, it really, it, it just runs the gamut. Wow. I've heard about the psychological. I did not realize it was actually viable for things like IBS and other physical uh, issues. Chronic pain. There are a lot of studies uh, right now with, with chronic pain um, and, and psilocybin mushrooms. Um, currently, there's a study. It's been ongoing at, up at Yale um, with psilocybin mushrooms for cluster headache and migraine as well. And there's promising, promising results as of today. Yeah, if you're interested in the pain management aspect, you can go to uh, cluster. The Cluster Busters organization has some great research on their website, and that's uh, clusterbusters.org, I believe. Correct? Correct. Me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. And uh, we we have our website is nymha.com. Uh, so it's New Yorkers for Mental Health Alternatives. And we have some other testimony from um, Jesse Gould, who is a, a veteran, and he, you know, talks about how he he has benefited and, and processed his trauma uh, using psilocybin-containing mushrooms. And I'll tack on to that that uh, Jesse is uh, has started an organization, and there are a few of them out there that send veterans out of the country to get this treatment because it's illegal here. And that's, that's wrong that we, you know, that we send our veterans, we send our soldiers off to war. And when they get back, they, they're not taken care of here and they have to rely on charitable, charitable organizations to, to, uh, to take care of their post-traumatic stress. Yeah. And that, that's one of the main things that we're looking to change is make sure that, you know, we are helping the mental health crisis of our returning veterans by, providing various act, uh, avenues for healing. So, you know, and these medicines that promote neuroplasticity have proven a lot of, you know, very useful in allowing people to process their trauma with therapy and, and move on. So there is some amount of preparation and then experience and then integration that's required to really heal from these situations. Well, I remember when I was in school, they always told me, don't do magic mushrooms and there are all these bad things behind them. So do you have any of these like preconceived notions about these bad things coming from magic mushrooms? No, <laughs> no. It, a lot of it was hype with the, the drug war. Um, th there was a lot of research done prior to uh, Nixon, uh, the Nixon administration proving that, that psychedelics helped with uh, various conditions like Phantom limb pain is just one of them that comes to mind off the top of the bat. Um, Korean veteran, uh, Korean war veterans coming back with um, phantom limb pain, having an arm or a leg missing, were being treated with LSD, and they had tremendous success, success with the, with those treatments at the time. So there are, you know, there were plenty of other conditions that that helped. And and I I will definitely admit that there is not no risk, but the risk really comes from what you are yourself processing. And a lot depends on your set and setting. So if you take one of these uh, substances that promote neuroplasticity and you go to a bar and you're around a lot of chaotic people, and you may not have the best experience because it may open your traumas up in a way that 
you you are not able to process them. And so if you take a substance like this that is hugely impactful on your emotions and your way that you're processing things without guardrails, that's where the difficult situations arise. So so it's it's about education and we are engaged in disentangling the misinformation that the last 30 years plus have woven into the just say no culture. Right. The term set and setting are, are, are big. You have to be in the right mindset and in the right setting um, when you use psychedelic substances. Period. Yeah. And as you kind of alluded to earlier, uh, dosage is very important. So if it's not too technical, how, how do you guys kind of control for that with something as natural as a mushroom? Sure. Well, that, that, that is one of the things that uh, we are trying to pass legislation in order for better testing or testing at all of these medicines, just like cannabis, just like alcohol, you know, cannabis tests for CBD and, and THC and alcohol tests for alcohol content. There are ways to test how strong, how much psilocybin and psilocin and bactosin are in each uh, uh, of the mushroom products. That doesn't exist right now in, in the gray market uh, that we we currently you know uh, work through, and to be able to provide safe dosing, we need to create ways that people can have access to that technology. And right now, without you know it being just a Schedule One substance, you know, and 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 with no medical use uh, uh, acknowledged, there's no system set up to help people understand what it is that they're taking because the the different there's over 250 mushrooms that contain psilocybin and all of them wow. contain it to different amounts and so you can take a handful of one and be totally fine or you can take one of another and have a very uh involved experience so this uh, the, uh this upcoming event what can people expect at this event well it's uh, uh the uh um, the group Reconsider um, gathers um, people from all walks of life, first responders, veterans, medical professionals, and they they showcase uh, stories of transformation, like myself, who, you know, basically psilocybin changed my life. It helped me with, you know, was a treatment for cluster headache. It also helped me with post-traumatic stress and, uh, and an opioid addiction that I picked up after I retired. Um, and my story is just one of the many people out there that, that have benefited from uh, from psilocybin. And, and this is a showcase of uh, from four, four different perspectives and uh, looking forward to it. Yeah. And, and the participant, the subjects of the films will be there as well as the filmmakers as part of a panel so that, um, you know, people can question, ask questions and, and get some answers, too. So we'll see. We'll show the movies and then also have a panel. Within the last 30 seconds, is there anything else that uh, was left unsaid and where can more people find more information about what we talked about today and the event? Sure. Follow uh, our Instagram at NY Psilocybin Action Committee. That's all one word. And uh, February 27th, the Tuesday after the screening, we will be occupying the hallway at the legislative office building and speaking with lawmakers. And so if you're interested in helping us move this issue forward, please come and, and talk to lawmakers and tell them why this is important. Reconsider.org. You can, you can go to that website as well. Nice. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. 
And uh, just for the listeners, from it, the screening will be happening on February 26th at 7 p.m. <laughs> Hopefully we'll see you there. Fantastic. Thanks. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. You're welcome. And moving right along to our final segment, Schenectady's All of Us marked the start of the Black History with the first Focus Friday broadcast of 2024. Founders Jamaica Miles and Sean Young spoke on Facebook Live as they kicked off a month where they were planning a whole series of Black History talks and online forums. In this excerpt, they discussed the ways that Black History is happening now and how the events around the world have uh, have an impact right now here in the Capital Region. We also... Um, as a people, as black people, often stand up for injustice anywhere, right? That's right. Um, it has not been a new thing for us to recognize that when imperialism and white supremacy is impacting folks in other places, we should be as loud and as vocal speaking out against those things as when it's happening directly to us because indirectly it impacts us when it happens someplace else. That's absolutely right. And we have, there's a long history in our community and people fighting for liberation, black liberation, that also recognize uh, the importance of fight for liberation everywhere. Right? Yeah. That's an injustice anywhere. There's injustice everywhere. Absolutely. Um, I feel like that's been our MLK quote for 2024. Um, and, and maybe rightly so considering the public awareness, right? Because not that it wasn't happening before, but the public awareness of what's happening in Palestine, what's happening in the Congo, what's happening in Brazil. And so I think that statement, you know, about injustice anywhere and this conversation about the fight for black liberation and solidarity is timely. And the history of black folks going and paying attention is not new. Malcolm X traveled to Palestine. Angela Davis still talks about Palestine to this day, right? Um, But also spoke about it back in the 60s, recognizing that the colonization and settler uh, mindset that was happening and continues to happen in Palestine is not all that different from what happened on this land here. Mm -hmm. Um, And the connectedness between the Western countries, the Western powers and their support of Israel shows that that further impact on our lives i think the parallels i mean it's obvious in many places including the united states and canada and australia and all places across the world that have been dominated um, by european powers right and and i think that you know this last bastion of it exists in in that way in palestine right in israel this whole entire creation of the israel state is a part of like what this long history of settler colonials has been. We're talking about government powers, right? And its ability um, to displace, to arbitrarily remove, um, and to take over, you know, lands uh, once belonging to, to other peoples. And the black folks in America that many look to as uh, bastions of the fight for human rights, that they lift up their name um, are the same individuals that have spent years and speeches and and dissertations about why the state of Israel needs to stop what it has been doing and that the people of Palestine 
are as deserving of humanity as anybody else. As anybody else. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, commonly known as SNCC, uh, published the Palestinian Problem, Test Your Knowledge. Uh, that was back in 1967. Yeah. The Black Panther Party also shared information that was coming directly from Palestine back in 1969. Muhammad Ali, mm -hmm. it's a name folks know. Yeah. that they would recognize, um, visited a Palestinian refugee camp. Desmond Tutu, Angela Davis, the list goes on and on. And creating this solidarity um, that exists in some very concrete ways, um, the Black for Palestine Network, Dream Defenders working with Black Lives Matter. And what happens here is also reflected and supported over there. Yeah. yeah Palestinians yeah. stood up for Ferguson. As a matter of yeah. fact, it was Palestinians that shared information with folks in Ferguson on how to deal with tear gas made in the U.S. used in Palestine. Really? Yes. They didn't know that. Yeah. They didn't know that. So that, like, literal connections of we're both being bombed with tear gas made in the U.S. and Palestinians reaching out and saying, hey, Here's some, here's some information because we literally know what you're feeling. The exact same agent used on you is being used on us. But what does that mean for folks on Hampton Hill, Arbor Hill, over in Troy? Why should folks care that there's a connectedness between the U.S. and Israel? I mean, on one mind, I can see very, like, clear how someone would be like, well, that's not my problem. I've got to find these jobs. I've got to find a place to live. When you're talking about systems, though, right, systems of oppression, many of the parallels become more real when you look at these fights in that way, right? Yeah. When you think about the fact that we're working off of MacBook, MacBooks right now, right? iPhone. The iPhones, right? Like, where does the, you know, the, the minerals that, that we need to make these things function come from, right? So yeah. we're a part of it. Same thing that's happening here, just thinking about this month in, in uh, Black History 365, there's still um, a lot of things that we need to get done here. Wages need to increase. Housing needs to be more available. Um, what do you mean, Sean? We need Sean? to stop, look, there's look not invest enough, in communities, not incarceration. There's right? not enough we resources. We don't have any money. We can't do those things. Well, I mean, if, if someone is telling you that, I would I would say, man, look at the number of the hundreds of like, like billions, billionaires that live in our state or and the type and the fact and the fact. Hold on. And the ahead. fact that since 2020, with all this economic decline has happened, the, the people that have uh, uh, grown their wealth are the richest of us. Yes. While everyone else is suffering, the people that have continued to grow their wealth, they didn't suffer losses. How much money have we sent to Israel? And we've sent billions to Israel. We sent, oh, we sent billions to Israel for the last, I, I, don't, I don't know the exact number, so don't hold me to it. But, but at I'm a moment's notice. 50 years. But at I a mean, moment's notice. For Ukraine, the same we thing. said, oh, this money is needed. We are going to pick it up and we're going to send. Literally the dollar amount, I think, is super important for us to recognize. We can talk about, you know, um, Make sure you tune into my conversation with Tony Gaddy on the economics. Yes, the economics of blackness, <laughs> yeah. Tuesday, February 6th, 6 p.m. Go to the link tree, register so that you can tune in. There is money. 
and it is about the prioritization and the decision about where that money should and will be spent. That's right. The U.S. government, the federal government, state government, local governments makes decisions every single day. And when there is a crisis, oh no, Israel needs to drop carpet bombs on children and hospitals and churches and mosques. We have to send them this money right now. But our homeless population, unhoused, children starving here in the U.S., we can't give money to the food pantries. Governor Hochul cut money to the food pantries. Mm -hmm. The federal government cuts money to education, cuts money to food pantries, and says, housing isn't you know we know it's a, a problem but we don't have the resources but when israel called mm -hmm. and said my brother <laughs> biden genocide please help me out he did everything he needed to do it is not a lack of resources literally the u.s prints money so when somebody says, oh, we don't have enough money for our schools or we can't build more housing, this is why it matters. The thought of what we're talking about is extremely important. Yeah. Um, I just also wanted to make sure we got in, you know, some more like of what some of the stuff we wanted to make sure people are aware of when we're thinking about black history. Right. Black history isn't just something that's stale and old. Black no. history did not start in enslavement of African peoples. It encompasses a lot, including. Mm -hmm what's happening right here today in the capital region of New York, right? When we're thinking about the work that you and I do, we're part of black history. When we yeah. think about our brother, Tony Gaddy and Batman, if I forget somebody, jump in. I'm going to. Jasmine Gripper, Adonis Richards. Arthur like, Butler heading Butler. the Human yeah. Rights yeah. Um, Commission of Schenectady County and the work they're doing with the jail. Yeah. That is radical movement fighting for human rights. In the city of Albany, it'll be a black mayor elected this there year. There will be. Right? There we don't know which one. Mayor. We don't know which one. But we but know. the two candidates. Um, there's three. Excuse me. There's three black candidates yep. running for the office. Yep. Um, and that's an amazing. And never. When has that ever fact. happened? And, it, and it's never happened. Yeah. Right? So it's just like when you look at the, the, the makeup of our city, um, City council. Legis uh, legislature here, the city council and the city's connectedy, and it having the most people of color um, it's ever had over the years. I think same this for our is school also board. so same thing for the school board. This is also that is also black history. Yes. For more information on all of us, go to all of us untitled and free.com. Also, thanks to Moses Nagel for editing that together. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Vinny Damopolito. And I'm Kelly McPherson, also your engineer for tonight. We also want to thank all our volunteers who made today's episode possible. Mark Dunley with uh, a segment and putting in, uh, helping with our headlines. David Moore, Bria Barthel, Moses Nagel, and your co-host, Vinny Damopolito. And of course, me, Kalen McPherson. This is all a team effort. Oh, and we want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send us an email at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. And thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile.